listening to In Tune, a podcast series featuring equity research analysts from BMO Capital Markets. Our shows explore key emerging themes, trends, and issues which are important to our institutional clients globally. Today we have a real treat in store, a deep dive into oil. I'm Camilla Sutton, Managing Director in Equity Research here at BMO Capital Markets, and I'm joined by my colleague, Randy Olenberger, who leads BMO Capital Markets coverage of the North American oil and gas industry, covering Canadian integrateds, large cap oil and gas producers, as well as oiled sands companies. Randy launched a deep dive report into oil demand all the way out to 2040, and that will be the focus of today's conversation. If you haven't seen the report, I encourage you to read it. You can pull it from Equity Research website or from your BMO equity salesperson. Randy, why don't we kick it off with peak oil demand? We hear a lot about peak demand, with some arguing it's already happened, and others suggesting that it will happen at various dates all the way out to 2030. What are your thoughts? Yeah, thanks, Camille, and uh, pleasure to be here. You know, uh, peak demand has been getting a lot of attention in the media, and a lot of attention from investors, obviously. And I think there's a lot of confusion about what it really means. I think you know, for a lot of people, the idea uh, is that uh, you know demand is going to peak and then it's going to fall off a cliff and all of a sudden we're not going to be using any oil. That's really not realistic. Uh, we are going to be using oil for a long time. And in fact, you know, once it peaks, it's likely to decline very slowly. So really what we need to think about is you know, what does the world use? The world uses um, a lot of energy and 55% of that energy comes from oil and natural gas. So it is the dominant you know, share of energy in terms of what's being provided. Um, over the next 20 years, that is going to decline. And it's going to decline for all the reasons uh, that we read about. You know, So increased use of electric vehicles, increased use of uh, fuel cell vehicles, increased use of uh, solar, wind, all of those sorts of things. Uh, but the main focus, of course, is on is on road transportation, and road transportation makes up about forty four percent of uh, of global demand. And it's important to recognize that you know while that's a big number, there is still you know fifty six percent of um, of oil demand is comprised of other sectors, and it's those other sectors that are very difficult to displace. And it's also important, I think, to recognize where the demand is. Um, the demand today is, in terms of the growth, is really in that non OECD region. Um, rather than the OECD. And I think, you know, a lot of people probably don't recognize that demand in the OECD has actually been declining since 2005. So we've already reached peak demand in the OECD region. And really the demand growth that we've seen over the last 15 years is really all about growth in the non-OECD. And of course, Asia has been leading that. But in the future, we're expecting, you know, demand growth to also come from the Middle East, from Africa, from South America, and really from Russia as well. So there's a lot of places in the world where demand is still growing. So if you step back and think about your question in terms of, you know, what what does peak demand mean? Uh, it means that at some point in the future here, you know, the aggregate amount of oil that we're consuming is going to reach uh, its maximum. Um, some people think that already occurred in 2019, where we consumed about 100 million barrels a day of oil. And of course, in 2020, that dropped a lot because of COVID and all of the shutdowns. But it's very likely that we'll see demand return to that level once we uh, get past the pandemic. And it's very likely that demand will continue growing for a couple of years beyond that, 
uh, probably out to 2030 before it begins a slow decline over the next you know, 10 to 20 years after that. It's not going to drop off a cliff. It's not going to disappear overnight. And so consequently, we're going to be using oil for a long time. So then there seems to be this increasing trend almost globally to move away from the sale of internal combustion engines or single-use plastics, a whole host of other things. So Randy, what are the implications for oil demand from those trends? Yeah. So, I mean, one thing that uh, I think most people are familiar with is just the idea that we're going to be using and consuming less gasoline because we're all going to be driving electric vehicles. So let's just ignore kind of the energy intensity debate around electric vehicles for a moment and assume that those electric vehicles are all fueled from renewables. Um, electric vehicles really today represent a very small percentage of overall sales. So in places like the United States or in uh, places like uh, China, where we're seeing a lot of electric vehicle sales, they really represent 7% or less of total annual sales. So the bulk of the vehicles being sold today still are internal combustion engine vehicles. Now, as you said, you know, you've got some manufacturers talking about stopping making internal combustion engine vehicles. You've got different governments around the world saying they're going to ban internal combustion uh, vehicles and, re- and replace those with electric vehicles. That's all fine and well. And we are going to see obviously increased penetration by electric vehicles. But I think we have to recognize kind of two things here. Firstly, the overall volume of electric vehicles in the global vehicle fleet today is very small. So not surprisingly, you know, the sales are just kind of getting off the ground. Um, so when you look at the total vehicle fleet today of, you know, a billion vehicles, you know, the majority of those, vast majority of those are still uh, internal combustion engine vehicles. And as we look at, you know, different sales forecasts for electric vehicles, um, you know, so the manufacturers have uh, sales forecasts. The International Energy Agency has uh, three different scenarios where we're looking at. Uh, by 2040, uh, those electric vehicle sales are expected to move from, you know, something in the range of a couple of million vehicles a year to as high as 85 million vehicles per year in the International Energy Agency's uh, net zero case uh, to, you know, something maybe in the range of 50 or 60 million vehicles per year. So a lot of vehicles. But by that same point, we're expecting the total light duty vehicle fleet to be 2 billion vehicles. So the reality is, you know, if you look at what electric vehicles will be in terms of the entire fleet by 2040, even in that most aggressive case, the IEA net zero case, electric vehicles will only represent about 45% of the total vehicle fleet. More likely, they'll probably represent something like 30% of the um, global light duty vehicle fleet. So what that means is we still have an awful lot of internal combustion engine vehicles on the road, um, and they're going to be still consuming gasoline or diesel. The other thing to keep in mind with those uh, you know, government uh, mandates to stop the sale of internal combustion engine vehicles Where you're going to see some game playing here is they're not going to be just all flipping towards uh, fully electric vehicle, you know, like a Tesla. They're going to be plug-in hybrid electric vehicles. So they're still going to have some gasoline engine component to them. And that's really just to kind of help uh, consumers overcome things like uh, range anxiety and all those other sorts of things. So I think, you know, the takeaway here is just to recognize that even though we're going to see this significant acceleration in the number of electric vehicles that are sold over the next 20 years, internal combustion engine vehicles are still going to represent the vast majority of the overall vehicle fleet. So gasoline demand, while it is going to peak and decline at some point, 
It's likely still going to continue to rise until 2030, 2035 in that period of time before it starts to decline. And even if you look at the IEA's net zero case, again, which is the most aggressive case, um, gasoline consumption in 2040 uh, would likely be about 22 million barrels a day, which incidentally is only 3 million barrels a day less than it was in 2020, which was a pretty depressed year for gasoline consumption. So we're still talking about a lot of gasoline consumed. And the most likely case is probably that gasoline demand in 2040 will be roughly the same as it was in 2019. And so even though we are moving along this path to get rid of internal combustion engine vehicles, you really need to take that with a grain of salt, step back and think about uh, kind of what the reality is, uh, which is that there's still going to be a lot of gasoline being consumed. That really helps put it into perspective. Thanks, Randy. Maybe we should shift here to focus on renewables. Many companies, including BP, Royal Dutch, Total, and others appear to be pivoting investment towards renewables. Can you talk us through this? Sure. You know, renewables are an important part of the overall shift away from fossil fuels without a doubt. And so we are going to see increased use of wind and solar and bioenergy. Uh, the majority of that, you know, not surprisingly, is going into the power generation space. And if we're going to have all these electric vehicles, we are going to need more power generation. But I think the first thing to recognize is that Really, you know, increased use of wind, solar and bioenergy is likely to firstly displace coal because coal is still the dominant source of energy for power generation. So that's the first thing. So when you think about increased renewable development, whether it's being undertaken by one of the super majors like BP or whether it's undertaken by an electric utility, really the target there is coal firstly. Now, we are still looking at uh, you know things like biodiesel, biojet fuel, uh, all those sorts of things, but they're going to represent a relatively small proportion of the overall demand. So again, think about oil demand running around 100 million barrels a day, perhaps growing as high as 108 million barrels a day before it begins to decline. Biofuels in the sense of direct liquids that are going to replace the consumption of conventional liquids like diesel or gasoline, uh, really probably only going to grow from around two or three million barrels a day today to something in the order of five or six million barrels a day by 2020. So we are going to see increased use of renewables, increased use and increased investment in renewables, but a lot of it really is going to displace coal. Uh, really, a small proportion of it is really going to go into the um, into the oil market, and and part of that is uh, these renewables just don't have the energy density required in order to you know kind of fully meet the needs of long haul trucking, for example. Part of it is just kind of scalability. You know, if you're converting restaurant fats to uh, to fuel, you really kind of got to think about the scalability of that. So it is really kind of a small market in that in that sense. And Randy, one of the interesting points that you make in your report is really about the implication of collapsing capital investment by oil companies. Can you talk a bit to this and what it means? Yeah, absolutely. It's it's. It's an important uh, point for investors to understand. You know, so all the focus has been on demand, and of course, you know, the uh, the COVID related collapse in demand has exacerbated uh, the trends that we've been seeing in terms of uh, in terms of the direction of demand. But again, that's going to be short lived. Demand is going to recover, and in fact, you know, we think demand is going to overshoot to the upside uh, over the next uh, twelve to eighteen months due to pent up demand. So we're going to see, I think, a very quick recovery in gasoline demand, and actually a surprisingly quick recovery in jet fuel demand. 
But what we're not going to see is supply keeping pace with that recovery in demand. So, you know, the oil and gas industry has really pulled back on capital spending over the last five years. It's down about 50% since its peak in 2015. Uh, Capital spending was down 20% in 2020. It's also down this year. And as we look forward, uh, companies simply are planning on investing less. Part of that's being driven by this shift that you mentioned by the likes of, you know, BP and Royal Dutch and Total towards renewables. So they're taking some of that capital away from traditional oil and gas investment and pivoting it towards renewables. Part of it's being driven by shareholder demands that they want more capital back. So they want the cash in their pockets, either through dividend growth or share buybacks. And I think part of it is being driven by shifts uh, in terms of how the boards are thinking about future investments. So in this world where, you know, carbon is bad and it's a carbon constrained world, I think, you know, CEOs and board members are sitting around uh, wondering how much capital they should actually invest. And so the consequence of this is we are seeing a significant underinvestment. And what happens is, you know, oil is, uh, you know, consumed and it goes away. It's not like gold, it sticks around. Oil, once it consumed, is gone and oil declines each and every day. The global decline rate is about six or 7%. So what that means is, you know, for producing 100 million barrels a day, we have to find another six or 7 million barrels a day every year to replace that decline. Uh, And that's even without taking into consideration any growth we might see. And in order to replace that, we need to invest and we're not investing. We're not investing enough to offset that decline. Over the last five years, the United States has grown faster than the overall decline rate. And so consequently, oil supply has actually been growing uh, faster overall than uh, the growth in demand. And that's really what led to the price collapse that started in 2015. As we go forward here, um, you know, the U.S. shale business is now starting from a lower base. So it's been declining for the last two years. And so it's got to start growing again from a lower base. But again, also, we are seeing these pressures from uh, external sources uh, to uh, reduce capital spending. And so companies are going to be a little more cautious. They're going to be more circumspect in terms of how they're they're growing their business and reinvesting in that business. And so we're going to see slower growth out of the uh, out of the U.S. shale business. And then outside of North America, we're really not seeing that uh, investment that's required to offset decline. If we look at the number of projects around the world that are sanctioned, uh, we are not seeing anywhere near enough uh, new supply coming on. If we just look at sanctioned projects, um, they would add roughly you know, 1 million barrels a day this year, less than one and a half next year, less than 1 million barrels a day each of the subsequent years. So again, thinking about the idea that uh, decline is about 7 million barrels a day, we are well short of that. Uh, so we're going to need to see additional oil projects sanctioned And really, the only uh, mechanism that is going to force that is oil prices that are high enough that uh, shareholders start uh, demanding reinvestment in order to take advantage of those high oil prices. And uh, some of these social issues kind of maybe get pushed to the back burner a little bit uh, because there's a recognition that we need to reinvest in oil um, because oil demand's not growing away. Randy, we're getting close to the end here, but one more question for you. What about a discussion on Canadian oil sands companies? There's a lot of differing perceptions here. Everything from stranded investments to the perception that oil sands is the highest cost to references of being dirty oil. How do you think about Canadian oil sands? 
Yeah, there's a lot of, uh, I think, either misinformation or stale information out there about the Canadian oil sands business. So firstly, a high cost business. You know, the oil sands business in terms of building new supply, new capacity is certainly a high cost business, particularly when it's compared to U.S. shale. But if you look at an existing oil sands plant, it's actually a very low cost business. And in fact, the uh, cost of maintaining that business and producing another barrel of oil is actually amongst the lowest in the world. So when you add up operating costs, royalties, other fiscal charges, and the capital that's required to keep the business running, you can do that in the low 30s in terms of a WTI equivalent price for the oil sands business. That is amongst the best in the world. You know, U.S. shale is around $40. Uh, The super majors are in the range of $50 to $60. So the oil sands companies are actually really well positioned on the cost curve. And that's a point that I don't think is really well understood. And the main reason for that is oil sands doesn't decline. Once you build that manufacturing facility, you just keep pushing barrels out with very little incremental cost. Uh, So it's an important point. And I think oil sands investors understand that. But those that aren't following the space that closely, I don't think they understand that. The second thing is is really this kind of notion of dirty oil. And a lot of the perception around uh, kind of the carbon intensity of an oil sands barrel is really based on stale data. A lot of the analysis was undertaken between 2010 and 2014. And the conclusion was at that time that those barrels, when they looked backwards, were about 30% more carbon intensive than the average barrel of oil consumed in the United States. And that really had to do with the amount of energy that was required to produce a barrel of oil sands. Well, a lot has happened over the last decade. And really what's happened is the oil sands has done a very good business of coming up with new technologies that reduce energy consumption. And as they've reduced energy consumption, they've reduced the carbon footprint of those barrels. And so today, with all of that R&D that has gone into both improving the environmental footprint, but also reducing the energy intensity, the average carbon intensity of a barrel of oil sands today is not that much different than the average barrel of oil consumed in the U.S. today. And in some instances, like the Fort Hill development or some of the Synovus in situ uh, barrels, it's actually 10% or so below the average carbon intensity of a barrel consumed in the United States today. So really that view that oil sands is dirty and uh, you know produces too much carbon, too much CO2, um, I would say is a stale dated perception. It's one that the industry is trying to correct but there's a lot of skepticism around it. But in fact, I mean, you really just have to look at the carbon intensity and see how much it's fallen over the last decade. Randy, I can't thank you enough. Your comments today have been really insightful, and we've certainly covered a lot of ground. That was Randy Olenberger, who leads BMO Capital Markets Equity Research Coverage of the North American oil and gas industry. BMO Capital Markets is proud to be able to deliver thoughtful analysis of oil and gas markets that is critically important to our clients. If you enjoyed today's Intune podcast, please do subscribe and rate it. Thanks for listening to Intune, presented by BMO Capital Markets Equity Research. You can subscribe to Intune on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and other podcast providers. Or Visit our website at researchglobalzero.bmocapitalmarkets.com to listen to more podcasts. Until next time, thank you for tuning in. To access our full disclosures, 
please visit researchglobalzero.bmocapitalmarkets.com slash public dash disclosure.